Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. So a friend of the show, Christina Murillo, posted a link for Trimark Security, which is her employer, and it was for common Azure AD and M365 security misconfigurations. She does M365 security assessments for Trimark. So she either authored or had a lot of input into this document, and I wanted to go through it because it is really good. Always good to review your security configuration for M365, especially if you are an M365 customer, which most enterprises are. I assume if you're listening to the show, you probably have some business with Microsoft, even if it's just O365 and Office, which this will have some things to do with that as well. The document first talks about the shared responsibility model for SaaS apps and specifically for Microsoft's shared responsibility matrix. And if you go to the link, you'll see that what shared responsibility is, is basically understanding that part of the security is on you as a customer and part of it is on the SaaS provider or in this case, Microsoft. And where that responsibility overlaps and who is responsible for what depends on what model you're using whether it's a SaaS, a PaaS, an IaaS, or on-prem. Obviously, if it's on-premise infrastructure, you as the customer are responsible for everything, including like physical access to your data center, which is where you're hosting your stuff. In SaaS models, that responsibility is transferred to Microsoft. We have data centers. And by we, if you're listening to the show, you know that Adam and I are employed by Microsoft. So in this case, Microsoft has actual data centers that are located many different areas and physical security is tightly controlled to these data centers. So in the SaaS model, that is on Microsoft. But understanding for some of these identity misconfigurations and access controls, no matter what model you're in, that actually always lies with the organization and with the customer. So access control to M365 is solely a customer responsibility. Good place to start. Always good to review that responsibility matrix. Like Andy said, it's linked in the show notes to the TriMark Security blog, where that is included as part of this discussion. But at the end of the day, the critical thing to know for today's conversation is you're responsible for all of this, because mostly what we're going to talk about is access control and variations thereof. The first one that they call out is regular user accounts are members of global administrator roles or highly privileged roles. Now, when they're calling these out, these are things that they see in their security assessments that are common at customers. And while I don't do security assessments myself, I've seen this at organizations that I've been a part of. I've also talked to customers who have had these. So this is a big issue. And by normal users, we mean like the normal user that you're getting email on, that you're signing into your computer on. That user is also a member of a privileged role. You should always have a dedicated admin account. Also, if at all possible, you should use use privileged identity management so that instead of assigning a direct role within Azure to a user account or an admin user account, you are assigning it to be eligible to elevate to that role when needed. Understand that PIM or privileged identity management does require Azure Active Directory P2 licensing, but I've seen at a lot of organizations where they just get AAD P2 licensing for their admins specifically for this feature for PIM. So it may not be something you want to license everyone with right away.
way, but just scope it to the folks who have privileged roles within Azure AD. Azure AD also kind of yells at you if you have more than five active global admins at the same time. And that only counts like if you're using PIM and more than five elevate to global admin at the same time, then it'll say, hey, you have too many global admins. There's actually very little that you need a global admin for from a day-to-day -day basis. So this is something you want to keep an eye on. And then of course, enforce MFA for your privileged roles. So that's their first one. Pretty straightforward. Still things that they're seeing during their security assessments. I get a little bit of flashbacks from that first item because when I first became in, at the time, O365 admin now more than a decade ago, at the time we did just use our regular user accounts and they were assigned global admin. And so when I would go schedule a meeting with someone, I could see their entire calendar. I mean, there's issues beyond just the security risk involved. There's the thing that I see things I shouldn't see because like I could open the CEO's calendar and see all their calendar entries. Like that's not good. So absolutely should be a separate account, I'll add the comment that not only should it be a separate account, it should be an account that is cloud only. There's not a synchronized identity. It is created and mastered in Azure AD. It only lives there. So just add that on as well, as long as you're going to go down that path to do it really the right way. Absolutely agree with you, Andy, on the privileged identity management. Even though it should be an isolated admin account, you should also do that just-in-time elevation. And as much as possible, you should not be elevating to GA, unless it's something that can only be accomplished with GA. You should have eligibility for other roles, like exchange administrator, Intune administrator, whatever you need to do the task at hand and elevate to just that role. Don't go GA unless you absolutely have to. It protects you. It acts as a blast radius protection for you because if you run a script that does something bad, maybe not having permission can save your bacon. So consider that as well. That has benefits to you in terms of job security and protecting your environment. The number of GA, you know, five is like a magic number. Obviously that doesn't scale with the size of your enterprise. So obviously, you know, it's a line in the sand to start with and then scale up or down as needing. If you're a really small enterprise, five could be way too many. If you're a really big enterprise, there might be times when you need more, although hopefully not. And then of course, I mean, my goodness, not only should you enforce MFA, but go listen to our show from a week ago about authentication strength becoming generally available in conditional access and require fish resistant methods of multi-factor for your admin accounts. Let's take it a step further, not just MFA, but should be something that's not susceptible to MFA bombing or not susceptible to the whims of your telecom. And otherwise, yeah, I think all great advice. And obviously, sorry for the tired phrase, but low-hanging fruit, because if you can protect those admin accounts, you've already hardened your environment a great deal. The second one is unrestricted external sharing access for SharePoint and OneDrive. And what they typically see is this is set to anyone, anyone for SharePoint and OneDrive, which is the default. Coincidentally, I was curious and I went and checked my demo environment, which is something that I spin up and show to customers. I've had this demo environment for almost a year and a half now, and I don't really do a lot of SharePoint OneDrive demonstrations. It's more on the security side. So I just went to check the sharing permissions. And of course, because I haven't touched it, it was set to the most permissive, which is anyone, anyone. And there are also additional sharing settings that you can do. You could limit sharing to a specific domain. Like if you have a competitor, you can just not allow your users to 
share to them. You can also scope it to certain security groups. You can also disallow guests from sharing things that they're not the owners of within that document or file. So take a look at that because the recommended setting that Trimark is saying is basically anything but anyone. So <laughs> if you want to set it to new and existing guests must provide a verification code or existing guests only that are already in your organization's directory, which means that an admin has to add them as a guest into the identity store. You can't just like have a user share it out to someone who's not in the identity store. So there is an extra step there, which is a little bit less permissive. And then you could just disallow sharing outside of the organization completely, which that probably isn't feasible for most orgs these days, especially if you're actively using SharePoint and OneDrive as part of your business process. But anyways, take a look at the settings there. It's something that most security folks probably don't go to because it is more of a collaboration tool. You might have a dedicated SharePoint admin taking ownership of that. So definitely something to take a look at from a security standpoint. This works in concert with all of the existing controls around external identities, by the way. So this is kind of a, a SharePoint or OneDrive front end to those capabilities. So the default behavior, anyone means I could create a link and anyone can click that link and view it. There's no authentication required. Trimark's recommendation is don't do that, which I would tend to agree with. The next one is actually how the Microsoft tenant is configured, new and existing guests. So that's where I can either invite an external identity that's already represented in Azure Active Directory for my tenant, or if it's not there, SharePoint or OneDrive will create an invitation for them to create an external identity in your environment and then access the file after that. Now, it's just a different kind of workflow, but under the hood, it's all the same process and it all goes to the same place. So if you already have controls in place around this configured at an Azure Active Directory level, none of this overrides it. Think of this as an application leveraging those existing controls and configurations. This is an additional kind of front end to it. Existing guests. Now, here's the thing. I've had a lot of organizations say, we're going to only allow existing guests. And like Andy explained perfectly, that means if you want somebody to access something, they have to be brought into your directory through other means. Usually that's, we're going to define some sort of admin who goes and creates those guests. Here's what I would challenge you to consider. If you want to operate in that model, you probably are going to create some sort of workflow, maybe through your ticketing system, maybe say ServiceNow. And it's going to be, oh, I want to invite somebody to look at this file on my OneDrive. Well, I have to go over to ServiceNow. I have to open a ticket. It has to get reviewed by this team. They're going to invite the user. Then once the user has created an identity, by the way, nothing happens yet. Now I have to go back and say, okay, now you can share that file. It's a very obtuse process. And what I would challenge you on is all of that extra friction adding meaningful security. Or is this just a way for us to have our fingers in more business because we like the control? Because unless you're doing some sort of vetting and having your help desk or whoever is servicing those tickets, doing some sort of vetting every single time they create a new identity, you're not meaningfully adding security. You're just shifting that work to somebody else and creating a more obtuse process that generates no security value for your organization. So I would say if you at all can, enable it so that people can invite guests through this regular workflow, through their normal process. Hey, I'm working in a file. I want to share it with someone. Okay, I share it out. That doesn't mean you can't put meaningful controls around it with conditional access and configuring external identities must do MFA or must do this or must do that. That's fine. Please do that. But I just challenge this model and I've seen a lot of orgs do this where they want to spin up a whole bunch of process around this because there's this perceived need for control. But I've never heard them articulate what security value they're bringing to the situation by adding all of that friction to it. So that's my challenge to you is if you want to operate that model, that's cool and it's supported, but figure out where you're layering 
an additional security value. If you're doing that, then when the person is servicing that ticket, how are they vetting that identity before they add it? Really good call out there, Adam. A lot of times security teams just want to do something because they think it's more secure, but they're not really enabling the business. And that's really what security is here to do. You should think of yourself as enabling the business rather than putting additional process that will burden users in the workflow. Absolutely. I mean, the, the worst part of that whole thing is, okay, I have to go to another system. I have to open a ticket. The ticket gets done. I get an email. Ticket's been completed. What's not going to be super clear unless somebody reads the ticket is that now they have to go back to that file, remember what they were working on and go reshare it. So you've completely taken that inspiration out of the moment of, ah, I want to collaborate on this with someone. And now you've created a multi-day process. And then I have to remember to come back to it. You're really stifling innovation and you're stifling collaboration by not allowing that collaboration in the moment when the light bulb goes off above somebody's head. So the challenge is make that worthwhile. If you think that's that important and you want to stifle that collaboration and productivity, then make it worthwhile through some meaningful additional security, not just we want visibility in the process because there's other ways to get visibility. Sorry to on my soapbox on this one, but uh, this is one I've been through a time or two and have some scar tissue from. The third one, surprisingly, is multi-factor authentication is not enforced for user accounts and admins. Apparently, this is still a thing. And I think Microsoft has statistics on this as well, like how many accounts are still not MFA enabled. I'm, again, shocked, but I think most people who are listening to this podcast or have been at at least some security you know, conference or something like that will understand the importance of enabling MFA. And if you haven't done it, you are way behind the power curve. And so definitely do that the best way to do it is through conditional access although there are other ways to enforce it there's also a new conditional access policy template these are the things where if you're not sure how to scope a conditional access policy there's a one-click template for a lot of different things that are very common one of them is require multi-factor authentication for all users so definitely go and do that if you haven't apparently the horse is still not dead so we're gonna keep kicking it But the one thing I'll just add to this, if you have resistance to enabling MFA because of some perception, and again, dear listener, I know you don't have an objection. There's someone in your business who does, right? I've been through that too, and I've seen plenty of that. If someone still has an objection to multi-factor authentication on the concept that it would be burdensome to users, we need to re-educate because a modern, correctly implemented multi-factor authentication should not be burdensome to users. The experience should be, I open my Windows PC, it scans my face, I send it with Windows Slow for Business without touching a thing, I go to my stuff and it just works. I should basically never be prompted unless something really weird changes or I'm going to something sensitive, like I'm going to my benefits site. And then only then do I get prompted to pick up my phone and do a quick number match and I'm on my way. Other than that, it should be almost invisible and transparent to users by this point. If you still have a MFA implementation where users are being prompted, even I'd say once a day is almost too much. It should be like once a week tops, then you're doing it wrong, to be honest. And so it's time to reevaluate and get to a modern practice and then go re-educate your objector in the business or in leadership or wherever that we can do this securely without it being burdensome to you. And here's how. And you know what? If there's cost involved with that, so be it. Articulate the cost of that versus the cost of a breach. And even the most hardened bean counter will see which side is the right side to invest on. So it's still a thing. And there's shock high. I mean, it 
it's Andy, it's still at least a third of accounts or something like that. I think from last I've seen, if not well, even, it higher. might even be more. It might even be more. Yeah, yeah, it's stunning. And I'll even go a step farther because you said Windows computer. Like I actually do my daily work on a Mac, mm-hmm. and I never get prompted for MFA. And when I do, it is the same thing that you get prompted for, which Benefit is site. anytime I'm accessing money, mm-hmm. like my benefits, or I'm changing my success W2, factors, HR, yeah, HR, yeah, anything that has like to do with personal vacations and and money and W twos and you know whatever like that will get prompted for MFA and otherwise I'm never prompted for it. And of course my Mac is enrolled in Intune. It's compliant. It has Defender for Endpoint deployed on it through Microsoft. So it is a personally owned Mac and managed through MDM. And I get prompted for MFA probably the same amount of times that you do, which is just anytime I'm accessing very sensitive personal information. You're right. I should have included the Mac. My Mac is enrolled as well, listeners, and I have the same experience. And even on my iPhone, same experience. So I didn't want to single out Windows PCs, I just know, of course, that's the majority of enterprise devices deployed and that integration between Windows Hello for Business and Azure Active Directory just creates that really strong linkage where you already essentially performed MFA when you unlocked the machine and you do that through a biometric, even better. It's completely seamless to the user. Number four is legacy or basic authentication is still enabled. I'm a little bit surprised at this, but I guess I shouldn't be because <laughs> enterprises move very slowly and so they are probably seeing data that there's still legacy authentication being used. Microsoft began deprecating basic legacy authentication in December of 2022. However, like I said, Trimark is still seeing this enabled in many tenants. And legacy authentication is prone to brute forcing and other legacy attacks because they don't support modern security capabilities like MFA. And, you know, if you remember way back in the day, like Pop Mail and those protocols where you had to like go and create like a app pack password instead of like just signing in and using MFA, that's legacy authentication. And there's still a ton of enterprise apps that probably have this. So if this applies to you, you should definitely test it. There's ways to look up in Azure AD logging for sign-ins on what applications, frequency, all of that, that are using legacy authentication. There's a selection in the filter to just filter based on that. So you can see exactly what's using it. And if it is a business critical application, you will want to reach out to the application owner, maybe the developer and say, hey, like, when are you going to implement modern authentication for this app? And so that we can move to it. When that hump is essentially tackled, you can then go ahead and block legacy authentication using, again, one of these new conditional access policy templates where it just says block legacy authentication. Now, you can also exclude like a user if you're using like a service account to like sign in. You can also exclude like an application from that conditional access policy. So definitely test it. If you have it, look at blocking legacy auth. You can make exceptions to that conditional access policy if needed, and then go from there. Another one of those, I can't believe we're still talking about this things, right, Andy? You hit the nail on the head perfectly. I will just summarize this very simply. If you have legacy auth enabled at all, it should be in a tightly scoped, and I mean tightly scoped, conditional access exception to a specific identity, a specific application, specific IP ranges, whatever, so that you have the minimum tiniest amount open possible because legacy authentication is essentially like leaving the back door unlocked. You can put all the security you want on the front end. You can harden the door six ways to Sunday, the front door, and then leave the back door unlocked. And somebody can just walk around and walk in the back. It's a big deal. We've been talking about it for a long time. Most orgs to their credit have done a great job with this. If you still need it, scope the heck out of it, lock it down as much as you can. This is essentially the exhaust port on the Death Star people.
possible. So, you know, make that as tidy as possible so a little X-Wing can't come through and shoot a proton torpedo in it. That's your goal at this point. You want it smaller than a Womp Rat, for sure. Sorry for the analogy, but this is a big deal. And again, our employer has started to just shut a lot of this down, like in Exchange Online, where it's just not supported anymore for things like uh, EWS API and stuff like that. So there's less you can do with it anyway, and I think your hand has already been forced, but there might still be a couple scenarios still kicking out there. So if you have none, you know, review your AAD sign-in logs. If you can't find anything, just block it entirely. If you've got a couple of apps, you have, like Andy said, two things to do. Number one, scope it. Number two, talk to that app owner about getting modern and in a hurry because time's running out. The last one on our list is no configured emergency break glass accounts, or they're not implemented according to best practices. So they're misconfigured essentially. And there is a whole Microsoft doc on implementing break glass accounts. This is something that you definitely should have in emergency situations when there's like a security breach or some sort of system failure. Normal admin accounts might not be available and having a break glass account will help you sign into your M365 admin, your Azure, and let you have access to those systems when your normal admin accounts may not have it. And so as best practice, Trimark recommends at least two. We'll link the break glass account documentation in here as well so you can review it because Microsoft has guidance on this. But they recommend having the dot on Microsoft.com as a global admin role to use as break glass accounts. So not associated with your tenant just in case something else happens, like your domain essentially. Use the default whatever contoso dot on Microsoft.com domain as your break glass accounts. And you should exclude these break glass accounts from conditional access and MFA requirements. Although you can still have MFA enabled for the accounts, just do it from a different conditional access policy, not your normal one that you would scope to all your other users. You should also enroll them in PIM so that they have the permanent global administrator role assigned. If you're using MFA, I would use a FIDO2 security token. You can use like the auth or maybe like, you know, a password vault and store that in there, but I would highly recommend against that. I would recommend using a FIDO2 token and then taking that token and putting it into a physical safe somewhere, like in your office. I've always been a high proponent of having physical safes in your security center, wherever your, your office is, because it can serve a multitude of different things, evidence for lawsuits or criminal activity, you know, just a place to securely store laptops that you're forensically investigating. But in this case, yeah, your FIDO2 security key for your global admin tenants. Yeah, put that in there and, you know, have a log, scope a process around it that anytime anyone opens up the safe, they have to sign in, sign out and have that audible trail. So have that enabled. That's how I would do it if it was me. And then you can have monitoring for the sign-ins for anyone who's trying to use these global admin accounts and have like an alert pop up if they're signed in under them. If you don't use FIDO2 keys, of course you could always like scope a super long password and store that somewhere. Again, I would do it offline if at all possible, but better to use a FIDO2 key if at all possible. So if I'm setting this up today, Azure AD accounts are still required to have a password. I can't have a password less account yet. So would you just recommend random number generator, random string generator and setting the password to garbage and really only signing in with the FIDO2 key or what's the guidance there? I would still set a long password for sure. And store that as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I would do both. I mean, you don't want like a, a guessable password. You still want to mm -hmm. scope a long password, even if you're using a FIDO2 key. But I would like to have the peace of mind to have the FIDO2 key. You know, just like... It's easier too. Yes. And also like if you were to... You know, actually I have a demo environment where I've onboarded AWS into Defender for Cloud. And as it's evaluating my AWS environment for security vulnerabilities, one of the things it recommends, and this is something that AWS recommends as well is that your root account needs to have a hardware token so just using a hardware token to sign into the root account and that would be the same thing here like have some sort of hardware token to sign in versus a username and password you should have break glass accounts and there's a multitude of reasons why i will say a common one i've seen is customers have locked themselves out with well-intentioned conditional access policies that go sideways so that's a good enough reason in and of itself because it's really hard to have microsoft support let you back into your tenant for obvious reasons. It's in general, it's really, really hard to access anything like customer data, customer facing by design, which is a good thing. Nobody at Microsoft has standing access to customer data. So there's a whole rigmarole process you have to go through to do that. So if you lock yourselves out, save yourself days of not being able to get in potentially or hours and have this that you can leverage. But of course, there's a number of really bad scenarios we can think of where you might need this. So highly recommend it. Love all of the guidance here. And of course, they absolutely positively should be cloud only accounts. I said all your GA accounts should be cloud only as well. Anything privileged should be cloud only, but this is the thing you should go do. Like if you get off this, stop listening to this podcast, you're like, gosh, there's some things I need to go work on. Number one should be break glass account before you go do anything else, because all the other stuff we're talking about, this can save your bacon if any of those things go sideways. So start here, get this one done. Oh, and, and definitely exclude it from all the CA policies for the, the first use case I just mentioned, where I've seen customers lock themselves out with a well-intentioned, but CA policy that went sideways. These should be excluded from every CA policy. There's no conditional access to access this account. It's just really hard because the password is 64 characters or it requires FIDO2 key. Right. If you have a bunch of them, after you create the account, just go right back into your conditional access policies and just start excluding that new account in all mm -hmm. of your policies. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully you learned something. I really enjoyed reading through this document because even for me, I looked at the SharePoint stuff and I, I didn't have that configured. So <laughs> Take a look. It's never bad to just audit your M365 environment based on some of these best practice guidance documentation. So thanks to Trimark and friend of the pod, Christina Murillo, for putting this out there. That's our show for this week. Thanks as always for watching and listening to our show. Our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week.